What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I'm solid to the crack, never change me and my son the rain. It gets wet when we hang. I'm solid, could touch the blue part of the flame. Welcome to Sportfire, the sports comedy podcast that agreed to a $262 million deal with Justin Herbert before he backed out and took an extra half mil from the Chargers. We were going to use him to reach the high shelf. I'm your host, Adam Weinerib, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, heck, everywhere but Penn & Teller's podcast app. Now you see me, now you download. We're not on that. And everyone else is. And why don't you go ahead and leave us a review while you're on your preferred app, too? Remember, five stars is perfect. Four stars is spitting on my birth certificate. Big show today, courtesy of Red Bull. And on with us ahead of the release of the upcoming documentary, Rolling Away, 2000 skateboarding icon Ryan Sheckler is here for a deep conversation. And because of that, here come very few jokes. But we'll still do a quick trip through the headlines. Jalen Brown of the Boston Celtics has landed the richest deal in NBA history, which makes complete sense. He's one of the best players in the Celtics locker room. Brown's Supermax will pay him $304 million over the next five years, including an astounding $69.1 million in the contract's final season. The money's not all guaranteed, though. It's actually a base salary of $1 with a $69.099 million bonus if Brown learns to dribble. The NBA has approved the sale of the Charlotte Hornets by a vote of 29 to 1. But on the bright side, this will be the moment Michael Jordan uses his inspiration when he becomes the best Euro basket owner in league history. The one vote against Jordan was from Knicks owner James Dolan, but it was mostly a revenge vote because a woman named Charlotte recently ghosted him on Hinge. Star NFL running backs met on a Zoom call over the weekend to discuss the financial future of the position. According to someone on the call, Nick Chubb spoke for four minutes, then Saquon Barkley spoke for three minutes, then Chubb spoke for three more, and LeGarrette Blunt spoke for one very tough minute. Then Justin Herbert talked for 67 minutes and just blew everybody away. Fred McGriff and Scott Rowland were inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame on Sunday, presumably because everyone else was busy. Both men gave emotional speeches before Harold Baines led the other Hall of Famers in the traditional bar-lowering ceremony. It really was heartwarming. Northwestern football players have agreed to skip Big Ten Media Day. Why? Did something happen? Northwestern's players have promised they will eventually answer questions as long as media members can make it through the Tunnel of Slaps. Sounds up to code. 
Meanwhile, it was revealed this week that Northwestern AD Derek Gregg's 2015 book called women booty shaking sex kittens and man's greatest distraction. Even worse, it was a cookbook. AD Gregg also said on Wednesday that there's quote, no place for hazing at Northwestern. Continued Gregg, that's why we do it at the abandoned shed 20 minutes from campus. I mean, if you got an abandoned shed, that's where you gotta go haze. And soccer star Kylian Mbappe turned down a reported $773 million contract from a Saudi team for his services. But to be fair, it was only like $650 million after Axe. And now my interview with the one and only Ryan Sheckler. Here with skateboarding icon Ryan Sheckler, um, for my generation, for anybody's generation, the new documentary Rolling Away comes out this summer. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the intro, too. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I say that across generations specifically because you uh, were truly born into this. Uh, I mean, you you know, it's it's evident from the from the documentary trailer and for anyone who's followed your career, um, you know, you, you sort of come right from California right into this career. Um, do you think that you would have been, you know, a passionate skater, a child skater, if you hadn't grown up where you grew up in California with all that access? It's a good question, dude. It's a super good question. And, um, I, I think about that a lot, dude. And you kind of, I start thinking about like origin story, you know, and like, um, where my faith is, you know, in God is just like, you know, like there was a reason for sure that I was born where I was born and raised where I was raised, you know, um, my parents, my mom used to race, you know, she was like a, a barrel racer on horses and my dad did surf skate moto. Um, so they were super active. And I think, really no matter where I was born, I was going to do something active. But the fact that I was born and raised in San Clemente, California, you know, Southern, Southern OC, where it's like surf skate community, I think it for sure helped, dude. Every single one of my neighbors that I grew up with skated and surfed, but skateboarding was so accessible. So for me, you know, I'm 33 years old now. I started skating when I was two. I really like started trying to get competitive just by nature. I didn't know I was being competitive. I just wanted to be like the big kids and I wasn't scared of falling. I had already broke my elbow when I was like five years old skating. And, you know, I remember the doctor telling me like, you can still skate with this elbow cast. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, that's totally fine. Then I can get hurt and still skate. Like I'm, I'm in. And uh, from a very young age, you know, I was never really um, I never fed into the fear of getting hurt and neither did my parents, you know, my parents would let us like fall and, and get hurt. And, you know, they, they never overreacted. Of course they got us fixed and like showed us love, but it was never like an overreaction. And I think that too was a very big, um, very big play in, in me skateboarding. But yeah, to, to answer your story, your question, like growing up in California definitely helped the cause for sure. You bring up a really interesting point there, too, that I wanted to hit on because, um, you know, it, it is, you know, it's easy for a, a lay person like me. I, you know, I have no skating skills. I, I can't I can't do anything. But it's easy for me to say, like, 
it's a dangerous game, right? You know, there are injuries that that's a part of it. Um, yeah. And you mentioned, you know, your parents were so willing while you were growing up to just kind of accept that. Um, have you skating now, now that you are a new father, um, you know, has that changed the way you worry about your own injuries? Are you willing to to risk as much now as you would have been 10, 15 years ago? Uh, the short answer. Yeah, I still am willing to go for broke. Um, it's calculated. It's a little bit more calculated now for sure. It's actually been more calculated, um, before I became a father, um, just because of the injuries that I have sustained, uh, I've had to by no means like dumb my skating down, but I've had to look at it from kind of a different perspective, like really listening to my body, like, okay. Cause normally I would go out and skate and no matter how I was feeling, I would go for whatever anyways. Now, if I go out and I didn't get a proper night of sleep or I feel that I'm not hydrated or my body's a little bit more sore than I'm used to, I'm probably not going to skate that obstacle that day. So I'll push it off to another time. So that alone, um, that kind of calculated approach to skateboarding now has, has definitely saved me a lot of injuries. But at the end of the day, I'm still trying things. Like once you see the video part, like this is a video part that's not like safe skateboarding. Um, there's, I'm not safe with it still. I don't know how to be safe. I don't know how to safe skate. I know how to be calculated. Um, so, you know, even, even the last trick of this part, you know, like it took me realistically, it took me three years, a little bit over 60 attempts and five different trips to this spot. And, uh, any outsider would be like, you're crazy and you shouldn't have done that. But for me, it wasn't crazy. It was a challenge. And I knew, I knew the risks and the risks were severe. They could have been very, very bad, uh, but they weren't, you know? And so I'm, I'm okay with those decisions. And I have a very supportive wife who understands that this is my life. And that like, if you take this away or you make me have to like dumb down my skating like um i'm not gonna be a very fun person to be around so um if this is just the nature of the beast you know she knows what she signed up for and um by no means am i taking unnecessary risks though um i want to be around for i want to be around like i want to be alive i'm not i'm not crazy but you know i enjoy uh i enjoy the uh, adrenaline rush of of the unknown as you mentioned in the film and, and as you mentioned just now, like there's sort of this one trick that this is hanging on that you're just going relentless and, and, you know, you, your, your career is based on, and this, this film is based on nailing it. Um, I assume like all other tricks and, and all other experiments, that there's a point when you sort of consider surrendering and you at least consider giving up and you have to fight that back a little bit. Um, yeah. When you reach that point, how did you convince yourself to keep training instead? I mean, that goes into life. That's not even skateboarding. You know, um, I've been faced with a lot of, uh, adversity, um, throughout my skateboarding career, which has been, um, which has been a blessing now looking at it from a, from a distance, um, while you're in it, while you're in any sort of like pushback or, you know, people not agreeing with what you're doing or are definitely questioning everything that you're doing. And, you know, everyone has an opinion and, 
you know, you feel that I felt that for sure. But for me, I've always pushed through that. I've like always found a way to realize that it's like, you know, if people really have a problem with me, I know that deep down there's something going on in that person's life because what I'm doing is not hurting anyone. Like I'm not hurting anyone with my skateboarding, with my actions, with, with what I'm doing, you know? So there's always this like internal problem that someone else is facing that like I'm the easiest target to lash out at. And so, you know, like there was like a realization that, okay, that's fine. And so for me, when I'm like need to push through these boundaries, it doesn't become about skate. It becomes about my mental and so for this last trick, like I knew I could do it. That, that wasn't the problem. The problem was every other aspect. Once I put my tail on the top of this ledge and I'm looking down, I could not get myself to trust the fact that I could roll away. I believed I could, but I didn't trust it. And so that's why it took so long. It took so long and it took so much visualization of like, I can do it, man. Like I can do it. I know I can. And I, I pray a lot. And so like, I never heard in my prayers that like, this is not possible. It just kept being wait, just wait. And I'm like, man, all right, Lord, like, I know, you know, this thing hurts, but like, I'll listen, you know, like I'll listen and I'll, I'll wait and I'll just keep trying. And, and, um, I finally landed it, dude. And it really like, it was more of a, an achievement of perseverance than um than actually landing the trick it was it was proving to myself that i could overcome a battle a three-year long battle um if i stayed focused and kept christ first which i did and uh and i rolled away so i mean life is a test you know absolutely everything about life is a test and you have the choice like you you have the choice to give up when things get tough and then you kind of miss the reward on the other side of that work or you push through it and a lot of times at the other side of that 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 trial is uh, something great that you uh that you don't even know it's there you you are a story of perseverance you know obviously beyond this trick um you know the, you alluded to it too like it's not just the story of making sure that you're pushing past you know the the hurdles in this moment but that you know you've been pushing past hurdles for a long time. And I know, yeah. like, I know your child stardom, you know, that that's an overwhelming thing for a lot of people to deal with. I know it specifically hit you pretty hard at a certain point. So, you know, when, when you were maybe at that peak and your fame was getting a little out of control, you know, were you, were you aware and of what was going on or, or did it take, um, you know, was it a while before you realized sort of what you were getting caught up into? Yeah, it was, it, it kind of took a while, you know, cause you get caught up in the sin of things. And like, for me, it was like, it was an escape, but it was like kind of fun. I'm hanging out with all these like super famous people that, that like really like skateboarding. And so like, I felt a part of this kind of like crew that was like, you know, musicians and a couple actors and, you know, Bieber and all, all these dudes that like actually like skateboarding. So like, I didn't have to like prove that I belonged in that circle. Like I was in that circle, you know, and, um, the drinking became excessive and, you know, at, at first I attributed drinking to like fun and it was like, cool. And we're going out and we're getting tables and I'm like, I'm hosting all my friends and, um, there, there was like a, a drastic point though, around like 23 or 24, where I was just like, man, I'm, 
I'm, I'm not happy and I actually don't know who I am. I've grown up in some sort of this like spotlight since I was like eight years old and never really hung out with kids my age. I was always traveling with adults. So I was always witnessing adult behavior. And to me, it's like, and obviously I had a chaperone, you know, like my mom was on trips with me. And so like up until 18, I was pretty like, I was pretty straight laced because I, I wanted to win. I loved skateboarding so much that I wanted to win. But like once I became, you know, 18 and kind of doing my own thing and got a house, I was able to like experiment a little bit. And, uh, you know, I'm an all or nothing type of guy. Uh, that's the reason I skate the way I do. Um, I don't have, uh, I don't have like a medium speed. I have either I'm not doing it or I'm, I'm a hundred percent in. And so with drinking, it just kind of, it, it just took me, you know, and it started slow and then it got worse real quick. And, um, yeah, I think that was my main, that was my main hindrance was that, you know, instead of going on trips to like, think about what skateboarding I wanted to do, I was thinking about what bar or what club was in that, you know, that state or country that I was going to. And, uh, it just took away from, it took away from my passion. And to go back to the beginning of your question, like it took my passion away. You know, this is the one thing that I've really enjoyed my whole life and I've been okay at is skateboarding and alcohol. Uh, alcohol made me second guess that and actually made me want to give it all away and like not do it anymore. So alcohol is really powerful. It's, uh, it's deceiving, it's baffling. And, um, I'm very, very thankful and very blessed that, you know, I'm coming up on three and a half years, uh, sober. And in that three and a half years, you know, like my whole life has completely changed. And I had about a sobriety before that, but, um, I wasn't really running a program. I wasn't trusting it. And, um, that, that caused me to, to go back out again when I was around 30 years old. And, um, I got a handle on it though. And life's all right. I, I so appreciate you being able to to open up on that so much because yeah, I, I mean, I just think that, you know, you're someone who it watch, watch when you watch this film, when you watch what you're able to put on tape now and still accomplish and still be able to live out your dream and do what you're passionate about. It's very inspiring to be able to watch that, but also to hear you speak so openly about, um, you know, the, the thing that a lot of people my age, I'm, I'm 32. I think we're, we're almost the same age. Like, yeah. you know, I grew up watching you live a life that a lot of us wanted to live and, and being able to hear you speak about the downside, but not just the downside, but the upside on the other side too, is very inspirational. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. And you know, like I'm, I'm not glorifying the, the drinking lifestyle, but I'm also not going to tell you that there wasn't any point of that period that I didn't have fun, you know, like, could I have had fun sober during that time? Absolutely. I could have done the whole thing. sober. I didn't know any better. You know, um, I didn't have anyone telling me that like, Hey, you might like want to chill out, you know, um, until it was a little bit too late. But, um, I say that loosely because it wasn't too late. I figured it out, um, with a lot of help from a lot of people that love me and care about me and like, we're concerned and we're concerned about my well being, not not the party ending for them. They were concerned about me actually as a person. And um, that concern and that love actually allowed me to figure out who Ryan was and be okay with Ryan as the person instead of, you know, this skateboarding guy, like my, my whole identity was wrapped up in like skateboarding, the show, 
this is what I'm supposed to be. So I almost had two like personalities, the guy that was on camera and then the guy that was off camera that, you know, was able to do kind of what I thought I wanted to do. But, um, yeah, I mean, dude, life's a journey. It's an absolute journey. And, you know, without, without Christ, without Jesus, like actually surrendering without me actually surrendering and being like, all right, Lord, like, I know you're real. I know you have a plan for me. Like I surrender, please show me what to do. And then bro, he continues to show me what to do. And, um, and I couldn't be more thankful, save my life again, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, the, the show is an interesting element to this as well, because, yeah. um, <laughs> You know, not only are you, you you know, you've got all the talent in the world and you're this star for a discernible reason, but you're also going through the reality TV boom of that yeah. era where where people's lives are on camera. I mean, yeah. right after the hills, it's this prime time slot. Is that sort of a moment you look back on fondly or, or with regret now? Nah, there's no regret. There's no regret at all. It's like uh, it was a phase. It was a phase of my life, you know, and and it's crazy to think about it. It's like people actually had to like sit down at home <clears throat> on a Friday night at 10 o'clock to watch these episodes, you know, and there was no social media. I mean, there might've been like Facebook or, and, and MySpace. Like I, I don't even remember what social media wasn't a thing, you know? So like we got all those views and all the, you know, likes um, in real time. And so th that was a trip, you know, and it was a trip to be, it was a trip to be on TV. It was a trip to have my friends on TV. Like it felt cool. Um, it felt cool at the time I was 17 years old, you know, like that's what I thought I wanted. And um, I'd be lying if I said it didn't help my career. Um, I still have people that follow what I'm doing from MTV days and, you know, that was years and years and years ago. And it is what it is. It was a part, it was a part of my life. It doesn't depict what my life is today. I don't even actually know that kid anymore because some of my, you know, some of the tone and the way I talk to people like, oh man, like I actually get a little bit of like, I can't watch it, put it that way. Like I can't go back and watch Life of Ryan. It's, it's too gnarly for me, but um, it happened and, and I'm okay with it. I don't regret it though. That's for sure. That is certainly good to hear. Um, you know, around, around that time, maybe even a little before that, I, I love asking this question. It's a little bit silly, but the, I love the reactions that I get when, when I ask this to people who have been lucky enough to be in a video game themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you are in, uh, you know, you're in Tony Hawk games, you know, do you remember when you first became a playable character and, and do you choose yourself? Do you play as yourself or was that too weird for you? Were you like, no. I'm in a reality show. I, you know, I can't be a video game too. No, you know, I, I think it was like a Tony Hawk, uh, like wasteland two maybe mm -hmm. or something. I, I'm not sure which one it was. Um, but no, I would always play. I would always play with Jeff Rowley and, uh, <laughs> my buddies would play with me and they would, uh, they would just make me fall and like, just, <laughs> just destroy me. And like, they thought it was super funny. I thought it was funny too. It's like, 
it's one of those things where it didn't feel foreign to me at that point because I had already been doing so much stuff and I had already been like, you know, on TV and, and, you know, in a movie with the rock and like doing like, I was just like, it, it wasn't like a foreign thing to me. But now when I look back at it, I'm like, man, that that's actually crazy. You know, like how cool, what a blessing to have been, you know, I guess part of, part of a, part of history in a sense of, you know, the, a, a skateboarding video game that actually, you know, made billions of dollars and I didn't see any of that money, but it was like, it was cool to be a part of that and to be acknowledged as, as a top pro skateboarder um, in those days and then to still be skating today. And then obviously in the documentary, like having Tony Hawk talk about um, my skateboarding and talk about his skateboarding and to be friends with, um, to be friends with the top pros in the world and like actually have a relationship with them uh, is cool. Skateboarding is my life. It's just, this is what I do. And this is where, this is where I'm at. I also read that, that Tony Hawk uh, attended your sixth birthday party is, yeah. how did that come to pass and how much fun was Tony Hawk able to have at a child's birthday party? <laughs> I mean, he was, he was able to have a blast because he brought, you know, he brought everyone that he was skating with, um, back in, in, in those days, you know? And so it wasn't really like he was coming and put on a birthday hat and like, you know, walking around like a clown. He like showed up to, to skate. Like we, it just worked out so perfectly that he was going to YMCA down in Encinitas to like go skate and go practice and my dad had somehow figured out how to get in touch with him uh through email and asked him if he would come to our birthday and uh Tony was funny he's always been super funny dude and he's like yeah I'll come for you know I'll come for chocolate cake and um I think it was like 500 bucks like we got Tony to do an appearance fee for 500 bucks which is crazy his I'm not even I don't even want to know what his parents fee is nowadays, you know, but like <laughs> we got him for 500 and a piece of chocolate cake and, and he came and he blew everyone's mind and he spent time with us and he dropped in with us and, and he skated with us and it was super cool. And as a six year old and my brother was Shane was four. Um, it was a life changing experience. And then, you know, like I kept skating and I kept skating and I kept trying to get better. I was motivated and, you know, I got invited to do a couple demos with Tony when I was like eight and nine. And then, you know, I stayed in contact with Tony and then I did the secret skate park tour with him. And, um, I think shortly after that, I was, you know, doing the motion cap down at Activision and I'll, all of a sudden I was part of a video game. And, um, we've been in contact ever since we've pretty much been in contact since I was six years old, you know, and, um, that's a, that's a really cool part about tony he's like he's super involved he is skateboarding you know he's a huge huge advocate for skateboarding and skateboarders and tony really did allow and make the make a movement for skateboarders to make millions of dollars for sure well that story surpassed all my expectations so <laughs> thank you for that that was yeah, even man. cooler that was even cooler than i thought it would be and and tony is skateboarding uh, you are too, Ryan Sheckler. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking so much time uh, to talk to me about this. Uh, if if fans could take one thing away from this documentary when they watch it, what what would you want that to be? I 
I don't know, man, just the passion, just the passion I have for the craft, you know, um, not, not really just the tricks, just the passion I have for, for the lifestyle of skateboarding. It's a lifestyle sport, whatever you want to call it. Um, but my world revolves around it. So, um, God willing, I will never have to stop. Yeah. That, that, that means everything. And that says it all, Ryan, uh, I appreciate you taking the time and have a great rest of your day. And, and thanks so much for everything and all that you do. Yeah, no worries, brother. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Mom, Ryan Sheckler called me brother. Can I have ice cream cake? That was really cool. Uh, check out the documentary Rolling Away presented by Red Bull dropping this week. And now, in place of a final flame, here are the top 10 worst people to be on MLB Trade Deadline Day. Number 10, Yankees GM Brian Cashman. Number 9, Red Sox GM Haim Bloom. Number 8, any barista who has to take an order from a frazzled Yankees GM Brian Cashman or Red Sox GM Haim Bloom. Whipped cream is gonna accidentally be on that drink. Number 7, whoever has to teach Harold Reynolds prospects names. Number six, the author of the article, the trade deadline is here and no trades will ever happen. Why did you write that? Number five, Fernando Rodney because he still gets cold shivers. Number four, Rangers GM Chris Young realizing he actually traded for a role this Chapman a month ago with no takebacks. Number three, any barista who has to interview either Yankees GM Brian Cashman or Red Sox GM High Bloom for their next job. A lot of pressure. One of those guys will be a barista. Number two, someone named like Jeff Alson or Ken Rosenthamp who isn't doing a prank and their name is just that. And number one, Shohei Otani because at the end of it, you're still an angel. That's it for our show. My thanks to Ryan Sheckler and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Two, to be specific, Penn and Teller, get us on your app. What did I do to you? Was it my illusions that are worse than yours? Probably, but I'm not giving them up. Oh, wait, actually, we're going to be back next week with a bonus. I lied. Isn't that fun?